Sang Konnichiwa and welcome to the Board Game Dojo, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. Thanks as always for joining us, even though we are probably the most inconsistent podcast out there in terms of releasing episodes. An extra special thank you to Taylor's Trick Taking Table and the Board Game Duel podcast for giving us a shout out. They are excellent in their own rights, and if you're looking for great board game content, give them a try. Before we start today's lecture, just want to remind you that we can be found on Instagram and Twitter, as well as on YouTube for reviews and tutorials. So that's also your thing. Give us a try. And if you're enjoying the podcast, give us a five-star review and tell people about it. It really is the best way to not only grow the podcast, but also let us know that you want more from us. With that housekeeping out of the way, grab a cup of coffee or some tea, get out your notebooks, because class is now in session. A little peek behind the curtain. So when us teachers are preparing for the next school year, we need to make a syllabus and a title of the class to submit. And when we want to make a description that makes our class sound interesting to you, because ultimately if you don't sign up for the class, we don't get to teach it and we don't get paid. It's about more than that. I mean, clearly if we weren't interested in what we're teaching, we wouldn't be teaching it, but it is the practical side of things. So when you're looking at that big course catalog, that's our time to impress you. But it's also a good time for you to click on the class, see the descriptions, and if you have questions, ask us about it. I title my class Psychology of Gaming and leave the description intentionally vague. So I get a lot of these questions from prospective students about what do you mean? Do you like what do you mean by gaming? Do you mean video gaming, board gaming, mobile gaming? And I answer, yes. Wait, hold on. Wait, which one? Yes. Does it focus on psychology? Yes. Gaming? Which one? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. I'm a bit annoying like that, but it's intentional because gaming can include so much. Yes, it can include video gaming. Yes, it can include board gaming, but yes, it can include so many other kinds that we don't quite put in either of these categories. One of these is a game in which millions of people play online every year, but I don't think many consider those who play it in the same vein as gamers. This game is fantasy football. Now, we are going to use fantasy football today to cover a topic that is so hard to isolate by itself. It overlaps with decision-making, with personality, with anxiety disorders, and social pressures. We are going to use fantasy football to talk about risk, why some people have a propensity to take more risks, and how context can play a part in that, and of course, how you can use risk to win. So let's start with what fantasy football is and its history. Fantasy football is a game in which players in a league draft real-life players onto their teams, and based on how these players do in real life, they get points on their compiled team. Each week, different teams in one's league face off one-on-one, and whosoever players do better that week, the team gets more points, well, they win. This game actually dates back to the 60s. The man who conceived the idea for fantasy football and who deserves the most credit for the birth of the game is the late Wilfred Bill Wenkenbach, who was a limited partner with the, at the time, Oakland Raiders. He owned a financial stake in the team, but really had no say in its operation. Wenkenbach devised and played precursor fantasy games involving golf and baseball in the 1950s that later provided the inspiration for fantasy football. So in the mid-50s, Wenkenbach developed the PGA Golf Tour game where every week the players would draft pro golfers and then add up their scores after the weekly tournament was over. And then he developed a baseball game where the players drafted hitters and pitchers, matching statistics against their opponents. 
Fantasy football, the close relative of these two earlier games, was born in a room of Manhattan Hotel, which is now the Milford Plaza, on 8th Avenue in New York, during the Raiders' 1962 East Coast Road Swing, when Winkenbach met with two writers for the Oakland Tribune, Scotty Sterling, who was the beat reporter, and George Ross, who was a sports editor, and threw out his new idea. Basically, they were trying to come up with ways to make football more watchable, as the Raiders had won only three games between the 1961 and 1962 seasons. They stayed up all night drinking and creating rules for a game in which they could draft the skill players from pro football teams onto their own imaginary teams. The three took this new idea back to the Bay Area, where they started the first league in 1963, named the Greater Oakland Professional Pigskin Prognosticators League, or G-O-P-P-P-L, because apparently they didn't want a catchy or easy-to-say name. This game was not advertised, and really they didn't want the casual person to be able to play. They wanted only those with deep knowledge of the game to join. The league's members were strictly those involved in the game, such as football writers and AFL administrators. And that's the way it was for six years, this little game that nobody knew about. But in 1969, the game took its first steps to becoming a national phenomenon, thanks to, oh, and I'm going to butcher his name, I think, Andy Mussolimus. Mussolimus, who was actually an original member of the GOPPPL, introduced the game to the patrons at his sports bar, King's X or King's 10, I'm not sure which one it is, located in Oakland. Most visited the establishment for sports trivia, but found something far greater in this new game where you chose different players and scored points when they scored a touchdown in the actual game. Soon, word spread as people who visited the bar circulated the rules and began leagues of their own. Spreading mainly through bars and then offices during the late daylight hours, Oakland, then San Francisco, then across the country, newspapers began reporting that their sports writers were putting in longer hours looking up statistics during football season. Of course, part of fantasy football is also in the competitiveness and somewhat silliness of the game. One thing that was established early was the pride of victory and the humiliation of being in last place. In an interview, one of the three inventors, Scott Sherling, explains that Winkenbach had this trophy made with a wooden football face and a dunce cap on top for the guy who came in last each year. The last place guy had to keep it on his mantle till the next season, and when you visited his house, he damn well better have that trophy up on the mantle or there was trouble. But this was not a sustainable model. Having to get the annual to figure out who was on what team and the constant hand-done computations meant that the game took a lot of time and effort each and every week or year. In the following decades, around 1 million people played the game, still a quite good number, but nothing to compare to other games considered successful. Different ideas were introduced during this time to make the game more exciting, like getting to select someone from your team to keep for the next year, a keeper. Or the pirate rule, where you got to steal one person from your opponent's team if you won. Harsh. But it still stalled until 1997. In 1997, CBS, yes, CBS launched their first version of the game, making it free for anyone who wanted to play. And it exploded. Other major sports sites quickly went, oh, we need to do that, and hired analysts like Matthew Berry, who specialized in the game and became mainstream with spots on ESPN. By the end of 2006, over 18 million people in the U.S. were competing against each other, and then three years later, DirecTV introduced the NFL Red Zone channel, which showed every single touchdown and big play from all the NFL games on a single channel. 
No more having to decide what game to watch live and do highlights for later. You could simply watch the important plays for your fantasy team in one spot. But if a season seems too long, there's also daily fantasy sports or weekly fantasy sports run by some of the biggest sports gambling sites out there. Now, fantasy football is worth over $7 billion annually in the U.S. and $22 billion globally, which is more than the NFL itself makes. A game that was invented to make a not-so-fun season, at least kind of fun, is now one of the most successful sports games out there. Part of the people who, in the 90s and 2000s, are still around and popular in their own rights, almost as their own brands. One of those is the aforementioned Matthew Barry, or the TMR. He's a guy that is a bit of an acquired taste for some, but perfect for others. He mixes fantasy analysis with pop culture references, and it actually makes people understand the game and its strategies better. It's like a good recipe that you find on blogs where, you know, you have to like scroll through a bunch of stories of when the person made the dish and some other stuff before you actually get to the recipe. His articles are like that, but like the best recipes, they're normally worth it. And one tidbit, one saying that he popularized is repeated on many, many other podcasts. And that is his saying about the first round. Now, before we get into it, let me explain how drafts typically are. It is snake style, meaning that the person with the first pick of the first round will go last in the second round, but then first again in the third round. Like snake. Makes sense, right? Just like reverse order every round. So it's really important that the people in the beginning part of the first round make a good choice. Well, okay, it's really important that everybody makes a good choice. That's the point of the draft, but especially at the beginning because they won't get a second pick for a while. So theoretically, you should pick the player who scores the most points, right? Or maybe is the Vegas favorite for MVP, right? Well, you could, but what Matthew Berry supposes is that you actually can't win your league in the first round, but you can lose it. Let me repeat that in a different way. The person you pick as your very first pick can't win your league by themselves. You need a good team to do that, but they can certainly lose it for you. Because if your best player gets injured or completely busts, you are at an immediate disadvantage every week. This mantra is usually kept in the back of people's heads, something to keep in mind to varying degrees based on where in the draft order one is. But this year, it was important to keep in mind from the very beginning. Because this year, Unlike most years, there was a fight from who experts believed should be picked number one overall. Should it be Jonathan Taylor for the Indianapolis Colts or Christian McCaffrey for the Carolina Panthers? Now, Jonathan Taylor came in as the safe option on a team that got an upgrade at quarterback and who are projected to probably win their division. You want running backs on good teams. He gets the ball a lot and hasn't missed a practice since high school football. He probably isn't going to win you any leagues with some 30-point craziness, but he will be consistent and, most important, won't lose you your league. But Christian McCaffrey, oh, well, he's the very definition of risk. He could completely break the adage because he could win you your league by putting up insane weeks of 30-plus points. The Panthers need him whether they are winning or losing. He is arguably their best player and could be yours as well but he has missed basically the last two seasons with injuries, and owners who chose him first certainly lost their leagues because they felt so comfortable with him as their running back for their teams that they didn't draft a good backup until all the good ones were already taken. He could win you your league, but he could just as likely lose it. This season's number one pick became a bit of a personality test. Who are you as a player? 
Are you one who is safe, wanting the boring yet predictable path to success? Or are you a risk taker, swinging for the fences, which could be exciting, but is also just unpredictable? Christian McCaffrey is for the fans of Ricky Bobby. Always remember, if you ain't first, you're last. And this is where we get into our psychology topic for the week, risk. Risk is so ridiculously hard to demarcate from other topics because there's so much overlap. But let's just quickly cover what risk is and what being risk averse is. Risk is engaging in actions that potentially bring the individual closer to a desired goal or benefit, but that also holds the possibility of failure or cost. But I think fantasy football is more similar to how we think of risk in economics, which refers to the tendency to engage in behaviors or activities that involve higher variance in returns, regardless of whether these represent gains or losses. McCaffrey offers a very high variance. It could be a massive payout or a devastating loss. Being risk-averse is not being scared of risk, which I think is a common misconception. We're going to go over anxiety later a bit, but which is a bit closer to that perception, but risk aversion is simply preferring a sure outcome over that high variance. It's accepting that Taylor is going to get you 17 to 22 points, but he's going to do it every week, rather than McCaffrey's 35-point games, but occasional two-pointers. Why people are more risk-takers or more risk-averse has been something psychologists have been really interested in. Sure, it can be fun to talk about in the realm of fantasy football that in all reality means nothing, but after the 2008 financial crisis that ruined many people's lives, it suddenly became more important to study risks and how we can control them. We've mentioned the book Thinking Fast and Slow before. I think it was in our FOMO lecture, Uh, and again, if you haven't read it, please, please, please do. In the book, the authors talk about two systems, system one and system two of how our brains think. System one is fast, instinctive, and runs on Duncan. I mean, emotion. This, of course, can lead to error, but it can also process things quickly and effortlessly. It uses shortcuts, which we call heuristics, to come up with answers quickly. One particular one, for example, is called availability heuristic, and it means that our brains use what's the most available to make a decision. Most likely, this is based on recent events because it's in the forefront of our brains. It's why after news of a plane crashing, ticket sales go down and driving increases. People believe that planes are just more dangerous, even though car fatalities are much more likely. Let me give you a strange example of this in everyday life, hopefully. Say you are watching a movie, and it's nearing the end of the movie, and you get thirsty from the salty popcorn. You have next to you a lukewarm cup of water. But if you just go across the room, you can get some nice, cold, refreshing water, and it will refresh you even better. However, that requires more work, right? And I guess the lukewarm water is fine, so you just take the water beside you. It wasn't the best choice, but it was the easiest choice. This is how heuristic biases work, taking less effort, but maybe not giving the best result. That's system one. I hope that analogy was helpful in some way. (laughs) System two is slow, deliberative, and logical. Your brain only wants to use it when absolutely necessary. It only wants to go to the fridge to get the new water when you are out of the one next to you. It is slow yet reliable. It wants to analyze to slow it down so it can figure out the complexities of what is in front of it. System 2 is a response, whereas System 1 is a reaction. When you can quickly understand something without the need for System 2 to do much, we call that intuition. But we can actually play with people's intuitions and systems by doing things like framing and priming. We've talked about framing before. It's why we know that mathematical equivalence is not 
how our brains actually work. If I tell you, hey, we need to do an operation and there's a 10% chance you die, your brain is going to go, "Uh uh-oh, yeah, um, no, no, that's not great, Uh, no thanks. But if I say, hey, we need to do an operation and there's a 90% chance you survive, your brain more easily digests that. It's your system one reacting to the words and connotations that I'm using. Priming is an adjacent concept. One experiment that is decently popular to do in Psychology 101 involves a bag, some number of balls, and a bottle of wine. I think some of you probably know where I'm going with this. I'm not going to repeat the experiment now, but I'll describe what it is. Let's imagine that I give you a bottle of wine, and the label is taken off so there's no hint to what it is. Now, in my bag, I have 10 balls with numbers on them. Now, I'm going to say they're random. I'm going to tell you they're random, but really, they all have, let's say, the number 20 on them. I'll have... The, per- the participant draw a ball, then guess what the value of the wine is. And more likely than not, people are going to guess that the wine is somewhere around the number 20, maybe go so high as 30 or 40, but that's about it. Then if I replace the balls so that all of them have the number 80 on them, then ask different people about the same bottle of wine, they'll most likely say that the wine is somewhere in that range, but never going so low as 20. In actuality, the wine might be something like five buck chuck from Trader Joe's. This is priming at work. It's how one stimulus influences us to respond to something related to it afterwards. By showing people the number 80, I'm getting them ready to think the next thing I show them has something to do with 80. What does this have to do with risk? Well, our decisions can be influenced by the decisions we have already made or by wins and losses we have already had. Some studies suggest that priming people with memories of previous wins induces more risk-taking behaviors. So telling a fantasy football player about how nice it was that they won the championship three years ago might make them more likely to take Christian McCaffrey rather than Jonathan Taylor with the first pick because they want to repeat that glory. A budding theory posits that this can also apply to brands as well. Called the brand priming theory, I know, genius name, the idea is that a brand name or logo can induce a person's behavior. And some studies have linked this to risk-taking behavior, citing support that audacious brands can induce more financial risk-taking in the people who wear them. Now, I'm not sure which way the arrow points on this, and that's something other studies are really trying to sort out. Do people who are more drawn to risk-taking more likely to buy Red Bull and other promoters of adventure and extreme sports? Or is the fact that the Red Bull commercials are audacious and ridiculous priming people to drink a Red Bull and take more risks? Is Nike promoting empowerment, empowering people to slap on a Nike t-shirt and put themselves out there? I'm not sure, but it, at the very least, is something worth thinking about. But for many people, it doesn't even matter because they aren't going to be likely to take the risk in the first place, and many others just need an excuse to spontaneously try something. They probably wanted to do it anyway. In fantasy, I draft with people I know are going to play it safe. Draft is based on whoever is the next best ranked player, and they are set. They aren't going to risk drafting a team of injured players. They want the veterans who have never missed a game. But I know others who are going to swing for the fences drafting the exciting rookies and the players they see on SportsCenter's top 10 plays. What is it that inherently makes some people easily swayed to take risks versus being risk-averse? In a general sense, some of it actually does come down to gender. Generally speaking, men tend to take more risks than women do. Especially with recreational risks and financial risks, men have more intrasexual competition than women do for sex, and so they must advertise their sexual fitness through daring exploits more overtly. We see this go down a bit once married, but see risk-taking increase again in men after a divorce. 
But women take risk too, and research shows that they take more social risks than men. For example, they're more likely to change careers late in life or express unpopular opinions in business meetings, but they also take recreational risks. Both men and women can change based on the situation, but people individually change too. This is called domain-specific risk propensity. It holds that everyone has a unique risk threshold in each of five categories, financial, health and safety, recreational, ethical, and social. But what about as changes this individual propensity? Genetics is a huge factor. Psychologists have found that about 50% of what makes us either risk-taking or risk-averse is actually genetic. There are over 100 genetic variants linked to risk-taking. But how can this be? What are the genes signaling? For the most part, many of this seems to take place in the limbic system. The limbic system is involved in emotion processing and reward processing. It gives you the reward or the kick when taking risks. Teenagers, for example, have an extremely sensitive limbic system that constantly rewards risky behavior, partly because the teenager's brain isn't matured enough for the connections in other parts of the brain, like the amygdala, to be able to stop it. And just last year, a study came out in which we saw how these connections can affect risk-taking. The results highlighted localized inverse associations between risky behavior and gray matter distinct regions of the brain. Negative associations between gray matter volume and risky behavior were particularly evident in areas of the brain, including the hypothalamus, where the release of hormones such as oxytocin and dopamine controls the vegetative functions of the body and in the hippocampus, which is essential for storing memories. The studies also pointed to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which plays an important role in self-control and cognitive deliberation, along with the amygdala, which controls, among other things, the emotional reaction to danger, and the ventral striatum, which is activated when processing rewards. Now, this is veering really close, probably into neuroscience, which is not required for this class, so let me rephrase just about all of that. Risk-takers have a genetic component to their brain that partly shows in anatomical differences. Their brains look different and act different. Part of this is how our brains react to risky situations. Let's call this risk tolerance. Those with sensitive limbic systems and less gray matter take riskier behaviors. Their cerebellum and frontal lobes aren't thinking long-term. They are in the now. They are seeking a new thrill, a spontaneous rush of endorphins. Those with more gray matter take less risks. They are taking a more cautioned approach, analyzing, planning. And all of this is to say that this is all extremely complex. Risk doesn't just depend on one area of the brain or even just the physicality of our brain. Some other studies go against this and say the larger the amygdala, the less risk taken there is. It's all about the connections. Yes, it's in our ability to regulate emotion, it's in our control of urges, it's in our ability to rationalize and analyze, but it's also in our subjective perceptions. It depends on the context we find ourselves in and the memories we have, which is where it goes way into psychology and out of the neuroscience field. Someone with social anxiety, for example, which we talked about in that lecture, have a learned response that going out, being seen, is a risk they don't want to take. The risk is not worth the reward, or at least not in their subjective outlook of it. Or we can take a look at the prospect theory, another thing we talked about in our FOMO episode, where people are more influenced by a possible loss than a possible gain. The situation is everything, and if we have had a similar situation before, the outcome of that situation is important. It's why one of the questions people asked about who was going to be your number one pick this year was if you had had McCaffrey on your team before in these last two years. Did he contribute to your team losing? Even if you're a risk taker, that emotion-filled memory might just overpower your usual riskiness. 
And that brings us to our next idea, and that is how one learns about risk. You see, what psychologists have found is that how one learns about risk can influence how one perceives the seriousness of the risk itself. You can throw a bunch of stats at people, but if they have a personal bias against the risk, they won't take it. We see this in some experiments where you can give people a mathematically beneficial for them scenario and they still won't take the risk. One experiment was done by the Australian broadcast company. It's a version of an expected value risk. What they did was they said, hey, I'm going to flip this coin. If you call it right, you get $10. But if you're wrong, I get $10. 50-50 shot. People didn't take it. Okay, okay. If you're right, you get $15. But if you're wrong, I get $10. Okay, well, now this gets interesting, but still no takers. Okay, how about $20 for winning and still only $10 for losing? Still no, even though the expected value mathematically is now quite in favor of the player. It took them saying, okay, I'm going to do it 100 times and it's $20 for each win you have and $10 for each loss for people to do it. And still some didn't take the risk. There were two lessons that could be learned from this. One is that people can naturally just be opposed to risk for a subjective reason. Even if the math shows that the risk is worth taking and they tried to explain this to the participants, Again, it's back to the framing idea. Mathematical reason does not necessarily equal psychological reason. But the old man in the video brings up another lesson that they don't explore much in the video, which is that of trust. Trust is a huge factor when it comes to risk. At the most basic level, think about if you were at a carnival. You ever see those huge slingshot rides where you're in a steel cage and it just launches you? Like, okay, like a slingshot. But with the steel cage and only connected with some bungee cords? Okay, let's say you're at Universal Studios or Disney. Do you trust that ride to be safe? Probably. It's a big company that has to do a lot of safety tests repeatedly to make sure that ride is safe. You take that risk that you could die because, well, you trust that it's safe. You trust the standards. But if you walk up to a small carnival where the cage is kind of broken, the operator smells like they haven't showered in weeks and has a control panel that has a lot of duct tape on it, but they tell you, nah, it's fine, it's fine, it's homemade slingshot. Do you trust this? I don't know. I can forgive the smell, but the other things would make me freak out a little bit. I don't trust that, even if they were to tell me that they've had 100 out of 100 successful rides with no problem. To take this to an unfortunate but relevant adjacency, we saw this, well, okay, we see this in COVID behavior. Members of the public and experts can disagree about risk because they define risk differently, have different worldviews, different affective experiences and reactions, or different social status. Both the type of government that we have and the rising percentage of people who own smartphones mean that more and more people are participating in information sharing. Technological change has given the electronic imprint media the capability of informing us of news from all over the world, often right as it happens. Moreover, just as individuals give greater weight and attention to negative events, so do the news media. Much on what the media reports is bad or trust-destroying news. It's Trump calling something fake news or powerful special interest groups using their own experts in the media to communicate their concerns and their distrust to the public to influence risk policy debates and decisions. So what happened was that the public was fed a bunch of different things. There were many different measurements and even definitions of risk, and people responded emotionally from yelling on planes about not wearing masks to just straight up not believing scientists. And there's many aspects of that we can talk about, but the part that is relevant to this class is that for many people, the risk was worth it. The possible benefits outweighed the possible costs for some, possibly because it was due to misinformation of what the possible drawbacks were, death, severe sickness, lack of treatment, whatever it was. 
But for many, it wasn't, possibly due to their situation necessitating them to take it seriously because they were already immunocompromised. Economics exists as a field because of things like this. People can act rationally, but often when we are talking solely mathematically, they don't. The mind is filled with memories, doubts, biases, and generalizations aren't always the most helpful. But I think we got a bit into the weeds there, so let's pull it back. Because the idea of risk, that context matters, is important for another reason. We talked about that risk takers can become doubtful and not take risks, but there's also the invoice, can, inverse, sorry. Can you make someone who is risk averse take a risk? Well, of course you can. In one study conducted by Abigail Scholar and her colleagues at Columbia, participants invested $5 in a particular stock. Half were subsequently told that the stock had lost value, not only in the initial investment, but an additional $4. The other half were told that the stock had gained $4 in value. These values were determined, they were told by a computer simulation of real-world conditions. So then, the participants were given the option to invest again, this time with a choice. A 75% chance of gaining $6, and a 25% chance of losing $10, this is known as the conservative option, or a 25% chance of gaining $20, and a 75% chance of losing $4, this is the riskier option. Note that while the odds were longer, only the riskier option could eliminate the loss of $9 for those currently at the negative fourth that we started, before the second investment. Note also that these were undergraduate students to whom the dollar amounts at stake were significant. The risk takers chose the risky option roughly 50% of the time, regardless of whether their stock had gained or lost value. This was to be expected. But here was the interesting thing about this study. The risk-averse preferred the risky option only 38% of the time under the gain situation, but they preferred the risky option 75% of the time under loss. In other words, they generally preferred the conservative option when everything is going according to plan, but they will embrace risk when it's their only shot at returning to status quo. Excuse me. One of the most Famous risk takers in recent memory is J.P. Morgan's London whale, Bruno Ixel, who doubled down on a losing bet rather than admit his losses, ultimately costing the bank over $6 billion. Evidence from the Senate hearings on the matter, in the form of recorded phone calls and emails, paints a picture of desperation rather than overconfidence. And incidentally, Ixel was head of the Chiefs Investment Office, the purpose of which is to protect the bank from hedging some of its other riskier bets. What started as the context that should be risk-averse was made into a situation that required risk. And so we go back to fantasy football, where we are now in week five of the NFL season coming up. It has been a weird season, with many of the top running backs failing to live up to expectations, some of the most promising talents injured and out for the year, and what was believed to be a year in which you didn't need to draft one of the elite quarterbacks, well, actually, you kinda did. The fantasy year only goes to about week 13, so we are a quarter of the way done, and it's desperation mode for some teams. The 1-3 in three teams and the 0-4 oh teams, their contexts, their situations have changed. In my leagues, you have to pay to get in, and now that money is looking as good as gone, so it's time to make some moves. For many good teams, this is the chance to offload some of the riskier players for guys that can carry you through the playoffs. For example, I'd love for a team to trade me Keenan Allen, a wide receiver for the Los Angeles Chargers who has been the epitome of consistency. For his teammate that I have, Mike Williams, a guy who either scores 25 points or one point with no in-between. For me, Williams is annoying because while fun to have, I have too many guys like him. 
I've been lucky so far, but I could use some consistency. But the 0-4 teams, oh man, they need someone who can post 25 points because their guys scoring only 11, maybe 15 points aren't cutting it. They need a guy who can go boom because the rest of their team is going bust. I already pulled off one trade pretty similar to this, trading a guy that is probably going to be great for about two more weeks for a guy that should be good the rest of the year. That guy's team needs to win and needs to win now, whereas my team can just chill for a bit. And I pulled off the trade with someone who I was rejected for trades last year a bunch of times, probably because he felt inexperienced, but also because the situation to take risks wasn't there. He's risk averse typically, but in this situation, I was able to convince him that the risk was worth taking because there was no other choice. And you can use this in your gaming as well. Again, this is a psychology of gaming class, so even if fantasy football isn't your jam, taking risk in games is an inevitability. So let's cover some traps to avoid, or maybe just guide someone into. The first one is the gambler's fallacy, which is just one to notice, and it's the tendency to think that future probabilities are altered by past events, when in reality they are unchanged. This results from an erroneous conceptualization of the law of large numbers. So for example, if I flipped heads with the coin five times in a row, they might think that the chance of tails coming out on the sixth flip is much greater than heads, when in fact it's just the same. The next one is one we've already talked about, which is availability heuristic. But for fantasy football, this comes into play with injuries a bit. Yes, some injuries can lead to others, but some injuries are fluky things. Just because they were hurt recently because they fell down a flight of stairs at home because their kid left a Lego on the floor doesn't mean they'll be hurt again. Take advantage of someone associating that player with injury and get them for cheap. The hot hand fallacy also known as the hot hand phenomenon, is the fallacious belief that a person who has experienced success has a greater chance of further success in additional attempts. In fantasy football, these are the players to sell high. Yes, that player looks good now, but look at the numbers. They are actually doing terrible in terms of numbers and performance. They're just getting extremely lucky. They'll regress to the mean. Sell them now when other people think they are just going to continue getting lucky, especially to people who are 0-4 or 1-3. The sunk cost effect. When we have put effort into something, we are often reluctant to pull out because of the loss that we will make, even if continued refusal to jump ship will lead to even more loss. The potential dissonance of accepting that we made a mistake acts to keep us in blind hope. In fantasy, this is more likely to happen in teams who are already not doing well. Stop playing DJ Moore until he gets good again. Pick up a different tight end for Kyle Pitts. Take the name away from the player and just look at the numbers. You need to do better. And finally, anchoring or vocalism. The tendency to rely too heavily or anchor on a past reference or on one trait or piece of information when making decisions. Yes, that player did great in week two, but they haven't done anything in the past before that and haven't done anything since. It was a fluke, an outlier. Stop thinking about it as the norm and start seeing it as the exception that it actually is. If you can, whether it's in fantasy football or board games or video games, if you can understand these fallacies or maybe frame or prime somebody else to do it, that's how you win. I'm not saying be boring, my teams are full of risk because I really do either want to be forced first or last this year. I came in second in a few leagues last year and I think that's emotionally the worst. What I'm saying is risk is a part of things and understanding how to tolerate it, work with it, and slow down to evaluate if the risk is worth taking is how you win. Basically, swinging for the fences is fine, but when you're in a great situation and know that you just need to not strike out to win, maybe not swinging for the fence might be the best option. 
And since I'm now mixing baseball and football, I think it's time to get out of here. Thank you so much for coming. I will talk to you next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you liked what you heard,